Hello and welcome to the Eye Catching Words podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've listened before, welcome back. This week, the Woke Holder bloke is at the Hay Festival in Wales, which runs for 10 days every year at the end of May. Described as a literary festival, it is in fact much more. What? It is, in fact, much more, with a lot of opportunities for political discussion, music, stand-up comedy, children's activities, and a fair amount of food and drink. Is that good? Is that all right? Am I talking naturally? Okay. (laughs) But if you're into clean living, there are yoga sessions, massage tents, and a fair bit of tree hugging. The bonus is that there is some beautiful countryside all around, so that you get a nature fix as well as intellectual and spiritual nourishment. As I'm here for the whole piece, I'm departing from the usual podcast format and just focusing on the festival itself and picking out a few of the events that really resonated with me. And I'll be doing the same next week. Yes, it is a Guardian Reader's paradise and none the worse for that. We're staying in a delightful little loft-style flat a few miles out of town in a hamlet called Three Cocks. Appropriately, the owners, a local builder and a primary school teacher, keep chickens. So when our host offered us some eggs, we decided that we'd try them, despite normally following a vegan diet. I have to say I'd forgotten what a freshly cooked egg was like and how good it tasted. But as nearly all shop-bought eggs are produced under inhumane factory or other unethical conditions, and yes, that does include so-called free-range, This is unlikely to be anything other than an occasional indulgence. So let's get stuck into the Hay Festival itself on a day-by-day basis. Thursday the 25th. We got down to Hay mid-afternoon and had our one and only event on the first day with Alistair Campbell and Raphael Beer. Was it Bear? Both of whom do have books out at the moment. The title of the session was Politics Without Rage, which can be interpreted in a number of ways, but which I think means that we Guardian readers are bloody exhausted after seven years of post-Brexit vote stupidity and an attempt to turn Britain into a right-wing dictatorship led by people who have no idea how to lead and so instead just try and foment hatred of immigrants and create culture wars that don't exist. Which, of course, just goes to show that I still have plenty of rage, and so too has Alistair Campbell, if his now famous encounter with Fiona Bruce on Question Time last month is anything to go by. <laughs> what are you doing? Keep that laugh in. Uh, I'll keep it in. I'll keep it in. Uh, what are you doing with your t shirt? Why are you stretching your t shirt? Okay. Which, of course, just goes to show that I still have plenty of rage, and so too has Alistair Campbell if his now-famous encounter with Fiona Bruce on Question Time last month is anything to go by. This received more than one mention during the session. But the fact is, we are exhausted and need something other than rage to move forward. It was a very good session, quite far-ranging. Bear and Campbell are engaging and both are prepared to acknowledge the need to keep moving in terms of their political opinions. Campbell in particular said that he'd gone from being a naysayer to being in favour of proportional representation. I did manage to get a question in as well. 
<coughs> can you hear me? Yeah. We can. Okay. Uh, three things. First of all, uh, three. That's not a question. Uh, okay. Three things. Bloody hell! That's a speech. I'm, I model myself on, on certain people on the stage. Okay. But um, first of all, uh, a statement. Thank you for a tour de force conversation. I can't wait to see it on Hey Player. Um, secondly, uh, a request. Can you both do your book signing together? Because it will save me queuing twice. Because I both think your books are fantastic. Okay. That's a good question. But my, my actual question is, I, I re recently read Ian Dunst's book on um, how Westminster works and why it doesn't, which really, really struck home. Um, you've talked a lot about politics and personalities and tactics and I'm, I think underlying all that social media movements and what's happened in the last few years. But Ian Dunt says basically there is something rotten in the state of Westminster structurally and some of it is about the last question about PR, some of it is about the way the whips treat backbenchers, some of it is about the way the agenda setting for Westminster is is organized. Do you think as well as all the things you've said we've got to do to drive more enthusiasm for politics and get people engaged, how important do you think that structural reform of our democracy is? And just before you answer that, big plug for the media show tomorrow, one o'clock, free in the BBC tent, we have Ian Dunt, one of our panellists, on the show. So if anyone would like to turn up to that tomorrow, there you go. Alistair, would you like to speak? <laughs> if, if you're plugging, I want to plug an event. Now you've got to answer his question. I'm going to. Monday, go and see Jim Down doing the Nye Bevan lecture. Okay, promise you. Future of the health service. Um, right. Yeah, I, I do. Look, Katie knows Westminster very well, and so does Raphael. Um, even as you were answering that question, I was thinking, well, yeah, the obvious answer to that is yes. But the how is very, very difficult. Um, if you're a government and you're trying to get legislation through, you've got to get it through with the votes. And to get the votes and organise, you do have to have some sort of system that, you know, we had um, Rory Stewart telling the story in the podcast recently of George Osborne saying to him when Rory was about to go and vote against the government, Rory, just to let you know, if you walk into that lobby now, you're not going to be in the government for five years. It's your choice. Well, that's one of Ian Dunn's solutions is make it electronic immediately so they don't know. So he said there's something very yeah, difficult that's, that's walking not through the wrong the division. The human interaction yeah, I think there's a, and the playing of power. A, so I'd, I'd, I'd love to say yes, but I think practically okay. it's very, very hard. There's a, I agree, Mike. Instinctively you feel yes. I do think there's a, there's a danger in thinking uh, that constitutions and structures solve the problem. I mean, yeah, the... the, the Stalin constitution of the Soviet Union 1934 guaranteed freedom of assembly, free speech, you know, uh, you can write, you know, North Korea has a constitution. Um, what, so the, what's m more important is the culture of democracy uh, and those the sort of the, the, you know, the, the protocols that used to be taken as read that Boris Johnson ripped up, the prorogation of parliament was such an important episode because it showed that actually if you just assume certain things won't happen that the prime minister won't just dissolve parliament because he disagrees with it, then that presumption and that presumption turns out to not be worth anything. Then you've got a big problem on your hands. That's the Peter Hennessy good chap. Yeah, exactly. And, and and yeah, so you can't just rely on good chaps to do this sort of thing. So then I think then then the interesting question becomes: in what ways these institutions and the culture and the fact that the you know, Parliament feels like a boarded boys' boarding house still in a school in the sort of nineteen twenties rather than the modern institution? How much would changing that change the culture? And I think probably quite a lot. But for me, the bigger the, I'd go first, the changes I'd make. I think actually 
better, better paid, more empowered local governments. And then you, more people would experience good politics locally, and that would you'd get a bottom-up change in the culture. And the other one, if I could wave a magic wand and have a constitutional change, I'd go for separation of the powers. So you can have secretaries of state, ministers who are appointed can be held accountable by parliament, but actually you might have a, a, a you know, DWP secretary of state who actually understands the benefit system or something like that. And we're going to go for four, and then we're going to go for two, and then at the back, three. Audience questions at Hay are an interesting experience. They range from the absurd or long-winded to the incisive and well-informed. I've been guilty of the former and occasionally achieved the latter. But the fact is, a high proportion of the questions are fairly predictable. They probably need a new system where questions can be sit submitted online during the session and sifted before the best ones are read out by the presenter. But that may be a tech step too far for Hay. Friday the 26th. Believe it or not, on Friday we went to a session on the future of the NHS workforce. Talk about busman's holiday. This had a slightly comical element to it as the two presenters were a nurse turned academic and a GP turned academic respectively. They had clearly rehearsed the thing really thoroughly with the result that it came across about as authentic as an episode of Acorn Antiques, that famous spoop, spoof soap opera within the comedy show created by Victoria Wood and Julie Waters. So Jane, I was wondering, quite spontaneously, what you thought of modern techniques of teaching defibrillation to Algerian junior doctors on secondment to frontline Ukrainian hospitals? But it was quite good, and my soulmate did get a very good question in on this one as well. open up the uh, question a bit more into the primary care sphere um, and you mentioned earlier about the additional roles reimbursement scheme um, so this is about expanding the primary care into the um, occupational therapist the PG, um, the um, um, healthcare practitioners and so on and so forth um, we've talked a lot about bursaries but coming into primary care as you say there's no bursaries for the practices to do any kind of uh, supervision oh, with yeah. practice nurses. Mm -hmm. So that all has to be done by primary care themselves. So they have to utilise their own practice nurses with no payment um, to, to supervise and look after those practice nurses. Um, and also with those additional roles which are in post, when they got put in post, no one actually thought about they need a laptop. No one thought about where are they going to sit. Yes. No one thought about what about their supervision. Yeah. And so we have a lot of those people in those R's roles who are leaving because they can't sit with their colleagues. They can't have an MDT because no one thought about the fact that primary care estate, which is on its knees anyway at the moment, is even more on its knees when you're filling in all these fantastic roles in primary care but the practicalities of where people sit, how they link in with their, with their patients. And these are people who haven't gone to university necessarily, their care coordinator roles, mm, their social mm. prescribing roles. Mm, they're, mm. They're, they're not those high powered no. roles. And there's, a, there's some inequity in the whole way that our, our, our health ed education works from, from the acute trust down into primary care. I couldn't agree more. Um, 
thank you. <laughs> I don't I agree. There's, um, there's a lady yeah, in the front I agree. Here that has, just just to yeah. pick up your point around the estate, though, we yeah. talk about the estate in primary care quite a lot about you know GP surgeries not being big enough and you know those mm. sorts of. Yeah. You've raised those concerns no, I, quite I, often. Yeah, I actually, mean, it, you know, just having somewhere to sit is is a very important point in primary care. One of the commonest reasons for primary care practices not taking students um, is because they haven't got anywhere to put them. Mm. So it's the same real. Yeah, I absolutely if agree. You, I can hear you, and then I'll repeat your question. One of the things Hay does quite well is comedy, and there was a very funny collection of four stand-up artists in the evening. I'd never come across them before, but in addition to a Welsh woman in an impossibly tight, super sequined dress, a guy from my old stomping ground of Lewisham, and a self-proclaimed angry lesbian from Brighton, there was a completely off-world Australian called Sam Campbell, no relation to Alistair. This is a clip of him doing a very surreal and slightly paranoid tirade about how world is being invaded by clocks. But I'm not happy. <laughs> Someone was telling me the West is collapsing. Is that true? I, I don't know. I mean, there's, uh, there's, too, many, there's too many clocks. Do you reckon? <laughs> What's with all the clocks? Back in my day, well, not in my day, but wasn't there a time, I don't know, actually, but there was... Surely, do you know what I mean? But like, there was a point where there was, there was just one clock in every town. It was in the clock tower. It towered over you. We respected it. Now they're everywhere, on the wall, on people's arms, clinging to their wrists. They've started invading other vessels. The microwave, really? Oh, I'll just check the time. I'll look at the microwave. Oh, the phone is the worst. Oh, oh, oh it's, it's midnight. Oh, it's midnight. Midnight used to mean something. Oh, it's, oh, it's, oh, it's midnight. It, it used to strike midnight. Midnight had travelled through your body. It had put you right. They didn't have chiropractors back then. They didn't need them. Midnight had recalibrate your spine. I just got fired. I was working at Saturday the 27th, we started our marathon Saturday with Richard E. Grant doing a one-man show. He appeared on stage in a rather bizarre Union Jack waistcoat and issuing a few expletives which I didn't quite understand. But it soon turned into a rather wonderful account of his life and his career in the movies, and particularly his 40-year marriage, which ended tragically 18 months ago when his wife died of cancer. This brought quite a few of the audience to tears as he visibly choked with emotion. Interestingly, he was a product of the Empire and grew up in Swaziland where his father was a colonial administrator who drank heavily and who on one occasion nearly killed the young Grant in an incident involving a bottle of whiskey, a fit of anger and a loaded gun. The way Grant told this brought very audible gasps from the audience. But the boy survived and grew up to be a big puppy of a man. And you get the feeling that even now in his 60s, he's just bouncing happily through a life of unexpected fame, collecting selfies with A-listers at award ceremonies and indulging his lifelong passion for Barbara Streisand. I think his latest tour has just ended, but if he does it again, go book a ticket. It's great fun and occasionally very emotional. 
There was a lovely Shakespeare session in the afternoon, really enjoyable, with celebs galore, including Helena Bonham Carter, Tony Robinson, Sam West, Simon Sharma, and several others all doing readings. But you do get the feeling that these people are part of a vast network of the great and good who went to school together, or are related by blood, or shagged intermarried, and frequently retweeted each other. The British class system at its most palpably obvious. David Miliband and Helen Thompson, author of Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, were very good and gave a thorough analysis of global politics. But they were utterly depressing. (laughs) If you wanted proof that the world was backsliding into autocracy, this was made for you. It was ostensibly a conversation about American influence and its decline, but it quickly degenerated into a global pen portrait of the new world order that no one who believes in democracy wants. It was a real eye-opener to discover that the US Inflation Reduction Act is really a subsidy-driven strategy so that America can compete with China for top dog status as Joe Biden tries to wean America off hydrocarbons and in doing so undermine the Trumpite Republican cause. The EU already has a similar plan, but the UK, being the world's noddy no-friends, is clueless and in real danger of being left behind, as it is in so many other areas. Fortunately, we had the hilarious Jason Byrne afterwards, who rescued us from the prospect of going to bed feeling suicidal. I won't bother trying to describe him. He's a one-trick humour pony, but it's a very good trick, and he had the audience in tears for most of the hour-long set. Sunday the 28th. We kicked off with Simon Sharma talking for an hour about cholera and bubonic plague. Yes, you heard me right. I go on holiday for a fortnight and listen to people talking about terrible diseases. But the whole point of the Hay Festival is to achieve something remarkable, which is to both move out of your comfort zone, whilst at the same time coming away feeling intellectually and spiritually nourished. Sharma does this really well, and you always feel he's talking to you very personally as he staggers happily around the stage, not exactly lecturing, but more gushing with enthusiasm and never using notes or a script. He's also very good at picking out individuals who help him tell the story, usually an underdog or a vilified figure in need of restorative justice. Today he focused on Waldemar Hafkin, a man who did wonders to advance the science and practice of vaccination and saved many lives in India in particular, despite being someone who had also been on the butt end of unfairness and discrimination. These tales of the late 19th and early 20th century always stagger me in their breadth and scope. He started off as a political radical in Odessa, fled across Europe, worked in various laboratories in different countries, and ended up in Bombay, a typically British piece of Sharma storytelling. In a very different vein, the 88-year-old Michael Parkinson was interviewed, or rather was in conversation with, his son, also called Michael Parkinson. I really don't understand why people do that. But anyway, they were very good although they'd clearly done this many times before. Parkey is now very frail, quite literally half the man he was following an illness. But he addressed that elephant in the room straight away and apologised for being old, breathless and not as intelligible as he once was. This was a brilliant session with lots of anecdotes from both men, 
some great readings and some very funny clips from his interviews with celebrities down the years. It also had a remarkable ending as his son walked off, the stage dimmed, and Parkey stood centre stage clutching the obligatory hay flower and just smiled as he received a standing ovation from the audience that lasted several minutes. Wonderful, quite literally reduced grown men to tears. Late afternoon I went to a session with Professor Anne Kenny, a practising doctor who has written a book called Age Proof, which is about what you can and can't do to control the ageing process. A lot of good and positive stuff here if you want to listen, and she delivered it with gusto, good humour and a classically Irish charm. I dashed out and bought the book, and well, may well use it as a bible over the years ahead. Stay positive, have purpose in your life, be sensible about your lifestyle, and have lots of friends of all ages. The rest is out of your control. Oh, and find something to laugh about every day. Plus it is all research-based, and she decluttered the jargon very nicely. Great stuff. Sunday night's panel consisted of John Crace, the Guardian satirist, Daniel Finkelstein, an intelligent Tory peer actually worth listening to, Jess Phillips, the brilliant Brummy MP with attitude and a brain that can't always keep up with her gob, and host Rosie Boycott. This was a very powerful session, not least in the way that Jess Phillips described how bloody awful life was for so many of her constituents on the breadline, and how inequality has got so much worse after 13 years of Tory misrule. Finkelstein more or less admitted that his party was currently being torn apart by the crackpot right-wingers and couldn't see much hope for it in the short term. And Crace, despite being professionally funny, admitted that the state of the nation actually wasn't very funny anymore. In fact, for most people it was very sombre. A great session with an inconclusive ending. You can't, at the end of the day, turn this all around easily. There is just so much to do. Monday the 29th. Daniel Finkelstein popped up again in the morning, being interviewed by his distant cousin, the famous human rights lawyer, Philippe Sands. They knew each other for years before they realised they were related. It's another story of European migration driven by wars, pogroms and historical events. Finkelstein's mother was persecuted by Hitler and his father by Stalin. How they escaped death got to Europe met and married and raised a little Tory is a remarkable story. They lived in Hendon Central in a little semi and were sanguine about their experience. Finkelstein described how Ronald Reagan was televised visiting the Belson concentration camp back in the 1980s. He called out to his mother at the kitchen sink and asked if she wanted to come and look and she said, no thanks, I've seen it for myself. That's what you call dark humour, probably unintended but it was another very good session. San's own family story is just as remarkable, and you've got to love it when two people with gobsmacking family histories get together and let us eavesdrop. They went to Lviv together as the Ukraine featured heavily in their family histories and told some very funny stories about their travels. The interview with Jeremy Bowen in the afternoon was similarly fascinating. The man has developed a large belly and huge white beard, so it was unrecognisable when he walked on stage but the voice is unmistakable and the stories were chilling. In particular, he gave an account of meeting Syria's Assad and described in detail how the country was run by what was little more than a mafia-style family with bags of charm, expensive suits 
and absolutely no humanity. Mutilating an opponent and dumping their body on the family doorstep sounds callous enough. But to have the head of the household forced to go on television and thank Assad for letting them have the corpse back is just insanely vicious. This is what I value about Hay. People talking about their experiences, for good or bad, gives you such a powerful insight and a real motivation to find out more. And so many of the events interconnect in their themes and details. Assad and Syria have just been welcomed back into the Arab League after 10 years as the Gulf states' relationship with America and Europe has changed. There's a photograph of him in The Guardian smiling and shaking hands with other Arab leaders. It is a chilling picture. It says, fuck decency, stick around long enough, and the presidents and prime ministers of the democracies will come and go, but the dictators can stay in place. Scary stuff. I finished my day with an artist, Julia Lockhart, and a psychologist, Mark Blagrove, who have collaborated on a wonderful book called The Science and Art of Dreaming. This was very good. Apparently there are people who think dreams are significant, Freud for instance, and those who think they're not, they're just the garbage from our day that our brains put out when we go to sleep. Blackrove and Lockhart have a different and more humanitarian theory. The big value of dreams, in their view, is that when we share them and talk about them with other people, it's one of the things that brings us closer together and help us weave the fabric of society. Fascinating stuff. That's all for this week. I've, I hope you've enjoyed this insight into what is one of the world's great cultural events. Take a look at the Hay website for yourself and get a feel for the astonishing range of things that go on, because I've only scratched the surface here. There are 350 events spread over 10 days. The atmosphere is lovely, the connections you make will stay with you, and the local ice cream from Shepherds is worth the trip itself. Don't forget to check out eyecatchingwords.blog for new content and expanded material from this and other podcasts. On this site, you can also leave feedback and make suggestions, both of which I really welcome. Next week, I'll be doing Hay Part 2 and then going back to the normal format. I hope you have a great few days and see you next time.